So getting to know God, we just finished section number one, what can we know about who God is? We spent four weeks together talking about the fact that God is the starting point of all truth and that He is unknowable and knowable at the same time. That there's an aspect of God that we will never know, but yet even though we cannot know Him fully, we can know Him truly. Then we talked about the ways that God reveals himself to us and the two specific ways that he does that. He does it through what's called his general revelation, which is nature, but he also does it through special revelation, which is his word. Okay, the word made flesh is Jesus Christ, and the word written and printed, of course, is the Bible. And then our last time together, we talked about the Trinity, the glorious and mysterious truth of our faith, that we worship one God represented in three persons. And I was picking on Miss Janie and all the other math teachers that God is the only place where one plus one plus one does not equal three, it equals one. It's the great uh, joy and mystery of our faith that we worship a triune God. And here's what we said about that triune God. Basically, we said that He is an eternal spiritual being made up of three individual persons, including Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right, One nature, essence, and being, but three unique persons with unique attributes. Last time together, we said it's the Father who administers, the Son who accomplishes, and the Spirit who applies. That's one way to think about the Trinity. Now, that doesn't mean we fully understand the Trinity, but we understand enough to know we pray and worship one God, but when we pray to the Father, we're praying to a unique person. When we're praying to the Son, the Lord Jesus, we're praying to a unique person. And the Holy Spirit is a person, not an it, but a he. So we need to understand that about the Trinity. But now we're going to get into what I think in, in, uh, in section two here is going to be the longest of all the sections in this study. And that is, what can we know about what God is like? So many of you say, well, I know the Trinity, but tell me more about God. What's he like? When I'm praying to God, how does he see me and how should I see him? Well, that's what we're going to talk about the next several weeks. And I'm very much looking forward to it. I, I think this could be an exciting time of sharing uh, as we talk about his attributes. In fact, we are in... Uh, in unit 2.1, analyzing his attributes, analyzing his attributes. Now, but before we, we talk about the attributes of God, here's what we need to understand about God. And I've got a great quote that helps to illustrate this. When we talk about the attributes of God, we're talking about his characteristics, his character. But when we talk about God, it's not always what God does. It's who God is, and that's what makes him different than human beings. All right, for instance, when we say that God is love, it doesn't just mean that God is loving, although he is. It means that it is a part of his nature. God is love. He doesn't just do love. He is love, and his character is unchanging because he is an absolute being. Love comes from God. All these attributes that we're talking about, they're not just something that God does. They come from Him and His nature. And here's what A.W. Tozer in the book Knowledge of the Holy had to say about the divine attributes of God. The divine attributes are what we know to be true of God. He does not possess them as qualities. They are how God is as He reveals Himself to His creatures. Love, for instance, is not something God has and which may grow or diminish or cease to be. His love is the way God is. And when he loves, he is simply being himself. All right, we're going to learn there are things that God has shared with us and there are things that God has kept to himself. But when we think about God, we almost have to think in human terms because that's how we think. 
So we think of God as a person, which He is three unique persons. But here's the problem. When we think of human beings, our character changes. I could be loving sometimes, and at other times, not so loving. All right, I could be graceful sometimes, but at other times, not so graceful, because I have a nature that changes, and I have a nature that's been contaminated by sin. Not so with God. Everything that we're going to talk about the next few weeks when we say what God's like, this is eternal truth. It means God has always been this way, He is this way now, and He's always going to be this way. And that is great news. That is great news. So let me move on to number two. Well, that was number one, approaching an absolute being. Number two, God is great, God is good. It's how my wife or my uh, daughter typically starts our prayer time at the dinner table. It's the first prayer she's memorized. I'm excited about that. Uh, that God is great and God is good. So there's a lot of different ways throughout the history of the church that people have tried to understand God. And one of those ways is to divide all the attributes of God, the unique characteristics of God, by His greatness and His goodness. All right, what do I mean by that? Well, His greatness refers to His natural characteristics in relation to time and space. So when I say greatness of God, I mean His magnitude, His size, His presence, but then the goodness of God means His moral perfections, okay? And we, we know what these are. We've talked about these before. His love, His grace, His mercy, His justice. Some of these things God has shared with us, some of these things He has kept to Himself. All right, here's a couple of passages of Scripture. First, Psalm 145.3 proclaims, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. So the greatness of God, His size, His magnitude, the fact that He's past, present, and future all at one time, He has not given that to humanity. That's His greatness, and He sets it aside for Himself. But then there's the goodness of God. Psalm 119.68, okay, Psalm 119.68 proclaims, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. So the psalmist is saying, you are good. It's a part of your nature. And because it's a part of nature, in your nature, what you do is good. Teach me to be good as you are good. So the greatness and goodness of God is how people typically think about the attributes of God. And that's a good way to do it. However, I do believe there's another way that we can do it. And that's what we're going to look at in our next point, the gifts and the giver. Another way to look at it is to say, which attributes has he shared with humanity and which ones has he kept to himself? All right, the fancy way of thinking about this, and don't let the big word fool you, it's an easy word to understand when you know what it means, is the incommunicable attributes, what he has not communicated or shared with humanity, and the communicable attributes, what he has shared with humanity. And so a simple way to say that is just this. God has shared some things with us. He said, I made you in my image, and there are some things that you have that reflect me. But then there are some things that God says, I have not shared this with anyone. I have kept it all to myself that you may worship me properly in spirit and in truth. Now, think last week we talked about the Trinity. Remember how we said God has not given anything in creation to look and act exactly like the Trinity, and every time we try to make that comparison, we fall into heresy. Remember last week we said, well, if you try to explain the Trinity to a child, you'd say, well, God is a lot like H2O, like water. He can be a solid, a liquid, and a gas. And again, we say that's a heresy because once the solid is melted down, it's no longer a solid, it's just a liquid. 
But God the Father is still always the Father, and God the Son is always the Son, and God the Spirit is always the Spirit. So we use the example of a three-leaf clover, and the example of a man who is a father, a husband, and an employee. We use the example of uh, the sun being the star, the light, and the heat. These are all examples in creation where we try to show what the Trinity is like, but we all fall short because God has not shared that with anyone or anything in creation. There is nothing else in creation where three equals one except the Trinity. As we're going to see in the next few weeks, there are many other things about God that he has kept to himself, and then some things he has shared with humanity that we we would be made in his image and be a reflection to the rest of the world. And it's really important that we know the difference. Now, one of the, the passages in Scripture that clearly illustrates these Areas that God has shared with us and then areas that he has kept to himself. One of my favorite is in Exodus chapter 3. You guys know this chapter. It's the burning bush. All right, so Moses approaches this burning bush, okay? This, this bush that should have been completely torched to the ground, yet it was not consumed. In the, and God was speaking through the bush to Moses. And in this, we see a couple things that he has shared with God, or God has shared with humanity, and then a couple things he has kept to himself. Here's what I mean. So Moses comes close to God, and God is speaking to him in a way that he can understand. So this communication, this language, this ability to share thoughts and ideas is something that God has shared with humanity because God is relational, just like we're relational. But then he says to Moses, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. So there's a holiness of God that is unapproachable. But then here's the key. Once he tells Moses to go and set the people free in Egypt, Moses says, well, who should I tell him sent me? And he says, I am that I am. You tell him the great I am is the one who sent you. What does that mean that God says I am? Well, one of the ways that we understand that is that God is eternally present tense. All right, God always was, is now, and will always be all at the same time. He's past, present, and future because he stands outside of time and space. He is the eternal I am. None of us are I am. There's a time where we weren't. There's a time that we are. And there's a time that we will not be, at least on this earth. But God is not that way. He stands outside of time and space. I was talking about this this morning with our prospective member class. I want you to think about the joy in this. That God is past, present, and future all at one time. For me... I think about my sin. When Jesus was on the cross, he paid the penalty for all of my sins, past, present, and future, in one moment in time. He did it on the cross. It's amazing that he could do that. And then we say now that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, it's not the same with us. We're always changing. Sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. And so when we think about God as unchangeable and eternal and omnipresent, we're going to talk about all these throughout the next few weeks, this forces us to worship Him because He's different than anything else He's created. But yet He's revealed enough about Himself and shared enough about Himself with us that we can be relational with Him and talk with Him and have communion with Him. It's a great great mystery in our faith that there are some things that He has shared with us And there are some things that he has kept to himself. Now, as we move on to number four, to reflect and to revere. I want to take this idea and take it a little bit further. So, not that I know the thoughts of God, but just imagine that you're God for a second and you're creating human beings. And you have decided that there's some things that you want to share with your children 
And then there's some things that you want to withhold from your children. Why would you do that? Well, let's talk first about the things that he shares with us, aspects that he shares, the ability to love and have relationship and communicate and understand, all these things that God shares with us. Why does he share this with us? Because he wants to be reflected and imitated in the rest of the world. Those who are made in his image, I tell the children in flight all the time, we're called to be like a mirror so that when I see you and you see me, we ought to be thinking about him. So when God shared his love with us, He told us to go out into the world and be loving to others as a reflection of who he is and then imitate him who himself is loving. All right, that's what he calls us to do. So if that's the case, then why doesn't he just share all attributes with us? Well, there are some things that he withholds. And why does he withhold them? So that he will be on the throne forever and we will worship him. All right, so that he will be on the throne forever. He wants to be worshipped. He wants to be glorified. He wants to be relied on, and he wants to be trusted. All right, that's what a good father does. All right, I want you to think about your children and your grandchildren for just a moment. Don't you want to give your children and grandchildren good gifts? Yes, but you don't want to give them so much that they don't need you at all anymore. I mean, you're not going to just hand over every penny that you own to them and say, have fun right? I mean, first of all, they wouldn't know how to probably appreciate all the things that you're giving them, but also you want them to continue to trust and rely on you as you provide for them. Well, that's what God's doing. God is never going to give us more than we will say, God, I don't need you anymore. And we seek to be the God of our own life. We said that this morning. One of the reasons God calls us to give financially week after week after week is that we give to him with an expectancy and a trust that he will give back to us. We don't hold and save and and hoard in such a way that we no longer trust God and we become the gods of our own life. That's sin. God has created us in such a way that we will never have the opportunity to sit on the throne and be God ourselves. We can try, and certainly many people have, and that's the reason where sin took place in the garden, because we wanted to be our own gods. But God will never permit that. So He gives human beings limits. And can I say before we move on, I'm learning this more and more in my life every day. Your limits are a gift. Do you know that? Your limits are a gift from God. Because when you hit a brick wall and you realize what your limits are, God reminds you he's on the throne and he's in control of the universe and you're not. I hit that that brick wall quite often. Who knows the amount of damage I would do if I never got tired or my mind never shut down? I mean, I I just, I don't know what I would do. I probably would never stop reading and writing and working and thinking and doing. And there are times like last night, I just remember I was finishing seminary homework and I was looking over these notes and looking over the sermon and thinking about people I've been counseling and praying through all these things. And and my head, my mind was still going and going and going and going. And it was one o'clock in the morning and I said, Lord, I need some sleep. And it's like God reminding me, you have limits you have limits. I, I am unlimited, the Lord says, but I, I give you limits so that you'll learn to trust me and you'll learn to go to bed and trust that I'm very capable of running this universe without your help. Somebody said one time that uh, going to sleep is an act of worship because when you go to sleep, you hand the keys of the kingdom back to God and say, no, you're the one that's in control, not me. And I'm learning that more and more every day. There's a gift to the limits that God gives us. So we praise him that there are some things that he's given us but then some things that he keeps to himself. Some things that he says, these are mine and mine alone. 
All right, that moves us on to our next point, our dignity and our duty. All right, so let's go back to this idea that God has made us in His image. All right, those of you in this room and many of you in this room, if not all of you at this point looking around the room, are mature Christians who've been following the Lord for a long time. So maybe this is not a new concept, but I want you to think deeply about this. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? All right, we go back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. I know you know the passage, but just listen. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All right, first of all, something really unique in this passage, if you've never seen it. In the very beginning in verse 26, it says, let us make man in our image. I thought there's only one God. Well, it seems to me this is talking about the Trinity, that the Father, Son, and the Spirit are speaking together as one and saying, let us make humanity set apart from the rest of the creation as, as those who are sharing certain attributes of mine so that they'll reflect me to the rest of the world. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. And because we are made in the image of God, we've got privileges and responsibilities. The privilege is we have dignity. Every single human being has dignity simply by being made in the image of God. The Baptist Faith and Message 2000 in Article 3, here's what it says about humanity. It says, The sacredness of human personality is evident in that God created man in his own image and that in Christ died for man. Therefore, every person of every race possesses full dignity and is worthy of respect and Christian love. Even the people that you hate the most, who hurt you the deepest, people that really make your stomach turn, as, as awful as their sin and their evil may be, they're still made in God's image. And they're still worthy of dignity. All right? You need to, rem- you need to remember this when a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon knocks on your door. All right, and, and, and you know that they don't believe in the same God that you believe in, and they rebel against the truth that you believe but they're still made in the image of the same God, even if they don't know Him. And they're worthy of dignity and respect, whether or not they agree with us. All right, we need, to, we need to be the type of people that are showing Christian love universally to everyone because that is a reflection of God's image. He shared with us the ability to love, so we'll love others the way that He does. All right, every human being has that dignity, but also every human being has a duty. And what's that duty? If we're made in His image, we must glorify Him and reflect that image appropriately. All right, 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do so to the glory of God. All right, those who were in my youth group know that that was our, our verse for the group. DTGG, does this glorify God? Dave has taken kind of the same idea in a new direction uh, with the youth group now. Elevate. We are to elevate Christ in all things. We're to glorify and elevate His name so that He's made great in whatever we're doing in our lives. That's the responsibility that we have made in God's image. And and that is, by the way, why we're going to be judged in a way that the rest of the creation is not and either sent to an eternal place of being in His uh, relational presence, which is heaven, or to be cast away eternally from His relational presence, and that is hell. 
Animals don't face the same judgment we do because they're not made in God's image. Human beings are made in His image, and that's why there's a lot at stake. Every sin we commit will be judged. Therefore, we need to reflect Him appropriately, or we will face judgment over that. And certainly we need to have our sins atoned for. We're going to get to that a little bit further along. But there's a dignity and a duty to be made in the image of God. Now, not only do I want to talk about God's image, as we get to our next point, the purpose of His kingdom plan, I want us to think biblically about the big picture, the story. All right, I do this a lot behind the pulpit because I want us, whenever we think about the Bible, no matter where we're at in Scripture, I want us to think about what happened in the beginning and what God promises in the end. All right, the Bible starts in a garden and ends in a garden. It starts in paradise and it ends in paradise. It starts with being in the relational presence of God, and it ends in being in the relational presence of God. It starts with God's plan of eternity, and it ends with God's plan of eternity. It's returning to the way things should have been that would have taken place had it not been for sin. So anytime we think about God and us and our relationship with Him, we must think about the Garden of Eden. So let's go back to the Garden of Eden. Now, after we know that we're made in the image of God, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, the Bible says that human beings were given a responsibility from God. Here's what it says. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, I've said this in our Sunday morning service a lot, so I want you to think about this. I know there's some visitors that maybe have never heard me say this. God's intention in building his kingdom, was to start in just a little garden where most of the world was uninhabited wilderness. The garden was a place of paradise. And God's plan was Adam and Eve, made in his image to glorify him, would have children who had children who had children who would all worship God and glorify him and obey him and follow him. And that little garden would get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until finally one day all four corners of the earth would be covered by people who love God and worship Him and this whole earth would be His kingdom. That was His plan. And if we had never sinned, we would be in the midst of that plan right now. Southeast Georgia would be filled with nothing but human beings made in His image who love Him and glorify Him. However, we know that not to be true because we live in a world of brokenness and sin. Because in addition to that desire that God had, in a way that I don't fully understand, God decided also to give human beings the right to choose, to willfully choose to obey or disobey. And when Adam and Eve were given the opportunity and they were told that they could eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when they were given that chance to worship God or decide to be the God of their own lives, they rejected the kingdom of God and they told God to get off His throne And they sought to get on the throne themselves by eating of the forbidden fruit so they could have the same knowledge of God. And the kingdom was fractured. And so the garden did not grow. What happened is they got kicked out of the garden instead. And so instead of filling the whole earth with people made in His image to glorify Him and build His kingdom, they were were sent into the wilderness to fend for themselves. And we've been a mess ever since. 
In uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 through 24, here's what it says after the fall of man. It says, Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man... And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What does this mean and why did he do it? Here's what it means. Here's why he did it. When human beings sinned, all right, all of a sudden sin was a disease that contaminated human nature. And if, they, if Adam and Eve ate from the tree of life, they'd be in that sinful state for all of eternity without any opportunity to change. So God, in His love and in His mercy, kicked them out of the garden and protected them from ever eating from that tree so that their sinful nature would not be made permanent for all of eternity. But through Jesus Christ, we are redeemed and made new, and eventually, at the new heavens and new earth, God's going to recreate that beautiful garden. that We're going to call it the New Jerusalem. And we're going to get a chance to go back to that tree and finally eat of it. And that new glorified perfect state, once we eat of the tree of life, will be in that state for all of eternity. Here's what it says in Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and the servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. And so, again... God shares certain attributes with us, but there are some things He keeps to Himself and the things that He has shared with us that we willfully worship Him and glorify Him as those made in His image. That image was tainted by sin. It'll be restored by Christ. And then finally, we'll eat of the tree that we were kicked out of in the beginning and we'll be in that state of glory worshiping Him forever. And this is why God has given us some things but withheld others. Moving on to our next point, seeing through the stains of sin. All right, so we're not there yet. We're not in the new Jerusalem yet. Jesus has not returned yet. And so right now, there's an aspect of humanity that is what we call depraved, which means sin has contaminated us. And we don't fully reflect those attributes that God shares with us. What do I mean by that? Well, Depravity does not mean that human beings are as bad as they could be, but it means that every single aspect of our lives in some way is contaminated by sin. That's what it means. Whatever good you have in your heart, it's not as good as it could be because sin in some way has gotten to it. Even if you are loving, you don't love the way God loves because your sin limits the capacity for you to love. You may be more loving than other people measured by human standards, but no one in this room would dare say they love like Jesus loves because Jesus has a love that is not contaminated by sin. 
All right, what about grace? The way that you forgive and show grace to other people. You may have a great capacity to forgive and show grace, but you don't have the grace of Christ because your grace in some way is tainted by sin. All right, so we've got to continuously think that even though we're being recreated in the image of Christ, our sin limits the capacity that we have to fully reflect God. How do I know this? The Bible talks about this all the time. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, that's not popular to say that. All right? It's not popular to say that we have a, a wicked heart. That, that does not mean that we don't have the capacity to do great moral things. Right? I mean, even, even as sinners, there are some of us that God gives us the ability and, and we'll create or do these wonderful things. But it means that we can never be what God intended for us to be on this side of heaven because of our sin. All right. In the New Testament, Romans chapter 3, verse 12 says, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And when you hear that verse, you say, what do you mean, God? Of course we do good. Every day there's, there's, there's evidence of people doing good. No, what that verse means is, None of us does good the way God does good. None of us does good in a way that's completely unselfish. None of us does good in a way that we simply want to glorify God. All of us are tainted by our sin. All of us are. So, I could end the study here and say, well, we're sinful. Good night, everybody. But God doesn't leave us hanging on a cliff. He leads us to a Savior. Our final point a search that leads to a Savior. So, again, I know in the next few weeks we're going to talk about all these attributes of God and we're going to talk about the things that God has not shared with us. And then we are going to talk about the things that He has shared with us. But before that, we need to stop and say, if God has kept certain things to Himself, but He's also shared certain things with us and we're not doing a great job of reflecting those, do we have any hope? And the answer is yes, we do have hope and our hope is found in Jesus Christ. And I want to talk, I take some time to talk about how Christ is the answer to all this. All right, first, Christ is the image of the perfect, invisible God. So you want to know what God is like? God is like Jesus. All right, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17 says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All right, so things that God has set aside for himself, the image of God, it is perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ. He is the invisible God made visible. He told his disciples, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is the truth of God made flesh, the invisible God made visible. Now, most of us would nod our heads and say, yeah, I agree with that. But we forget the second part. Not only is Christ the image of the perfect invisible God, he's the image of the ideal visible human being. The perfect human being is Jesus. The way that we should be is Jesus. We don't have this pie-in-the-sky vision of God where we have no idea how we could reflect that as human beings. Jesus came down and said, this is how you do it. Watch me. Jesus is not only the invisible God made visible, He's also the perfect representation of who human beings should be. 
In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We always talk about Jesus reflecting God, but Jesus also reflects the perfection that humanity was supposed to have. If you want to know the perfect human being, if you want to know what you would have been like had there never been the sin of Adam and Eve, you'd been like Jesus in His humanity. You would love the way He loves, and you would give grace the way He gives grace, and you would be like He was on the earth. Not the, not the divine side of Jesus, but the human side of Jesus. Things that God has not given to us, but then there are things that God has given to us. Jesus reflects them both. And then third, Christ is restoring the broken image of God in humanity. Okay, I've recited this verse a lot recently. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He's recreating us so that the attributes that God has shared with us We'll be able to see them, and the world will be able to see them. And the good news is if you're a Christian, that process has started now. You should be able to look at your life and say this. I may not be Jesus, but I look more like Him today than I did when I first got saved. I hope every single one of you can say that about your life. I may not be Jesus, but I'm more like Him today than when I first got saved. All right, because we're being recreated back into that image to reflect those attributes that God has shared with us. And then we need to remind ourselves that at the coming of the Lord Jesus, He will give us a new glorified body to live on a glorified earth. And as He says here in Revelation 21, 5, He says, Behold, I am making all things new. And He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. When you and I are together and we're gathered around the throne, you will fully understand what we're talking about in this study. That there are certain attributes of God that He keeps to Himself that will make us worship Him because He's set apart. But then there's aspects that He has shared with us, the capacity to love and forgive and have grace and think and commune and have relationship. And we'll be exercising those attributes with each other in the new heavens and new earth for all of eternity. And so what I want to say before we enter into a time of discussion in the last few minutes, I always look at my watch and never know what time it is. Wow, I've got a little bit more time today. I want to say that our faith is more than being saved from eternal damnation. Our faith is about having an eternal transformation. We're transformed from who we are as sinners to who we were supposed to be before sin. All right, to be a reflection of God to one another and to Him. That's what we're called to be and do. And so, yeah, in the next few weeks, we're going to talk about uh, when you pray to God, what's He like? We're going to talk about what it is to pray to a God who is not confined by time or space, what it means to pray to a God who's all-powerful and makes these great promises. And and we're going to be talking about so many different aspects of God. It should be a lot of fun. I want to have good discussion. But I felt the need to start this section off by saying there are some things that God has shared with us and some things that he has not shared. And the things that he has shared have been tainted by sin, but they're being restored in Jesus Christ. And this is, I believe, the best way that we can analyze his attributes.